A spontaneous and unrehearsed interview. Mm, hello, and welcome to the 92nd episode of Curiosityness. I am Travis DeRose. Thank you for being here. And this is Curiosityness, where we learn about fun, interesting, cool things and new technologies. And that's why I'm talking to Rob Sake. He is the author of a book called Food 5.0, How We Feed the Future. So I've always, or I've recently, I guess, become super interested and curious about food and the technology implemented in food and what it's going to the future of our food is going to be like. So I've loved Rob. I love talking to Robert because that's what we talk about. You don't even think about where your food comes from or how it's made or how it's uh, distributed or any of that stuff. Like, I don't know. No one even thinks about that stuff. You just go to the grocery store and eat it. So that's what we talk about with Rob. And uh, we talk about, you know, GMO and organic and that kind of stuff and how it may be some uh, confusion or misinformation going on um, and pesticides and that all that kind of stuff. Uh, so it's just an interesting conversation. We may even do a follow-up. I think we will. We're, me and Rob were talking about doing a follow-up with more kind of the farming technology side of things. But uh, we'll just stick with this for now. Hope you enjoy this episode. Here is Rob Syke, the author of Food 5.0, How We Feed the Future. Boom. We're rolling. How you doing, Rob? Been great, Travis. How are you holding out in this COVID world? Oh, it's it's fine. It's all right. I, I can't complain. Uh, where 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 are you located? I'm in Long Beach uh, by LA. Long Beach, California. So, so you're surrounded by people. Unlike my background, which is a bit fake, this is an aspirational background. I want to be on the beach. I'm actually uh, in a uh, on a on a farm uh, in central Alberta, outside of Olds, Alberta, north of Calgary. So I'm kind of we measure social distancing here in our country, Travis, by by uh, miles, not feet. <laughs> so you haven't seen a person in in years there. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> cool, man. Well, I'm excited to talk to you, Rob, because I you make a good point. Like, kind of reading, I you know, doing my research on this stuff. You made a good point that is totally true with me, which is that I have no idea how or have very li- put very little thought into how the food that I eat even gets to my face. Right. You know, right. it just shows up, and I just take it for granted. I there's tons of it. It's never an issue. But this is what it is potentially a big issue. Yeah, it's, uh, I think that uh, you know, COVID has brought, uh, um, you know, COVID, COVID, and a COVID world uh, social distancing has brought the importance of food supply to the forefront of uh, people. And I mean, people stocking up on toilet paper and people stocking up on, uh, uh, well, that's a good example. Really stocking up on toilet paper, right? Um, yeah, maybe. Uh, and they began to realize after they got all the toilet paper home enough for three years, they they began to realize that maybe the real thing we should be concerned about is will we have enough food on the shelves of the grocery store, and where does that come from, and how's it going to get here? And people don't think about uh, the uh, implications of a COVID uh, situation on farming on farm supply businesses, on uh, transportation, distribution, processing of food. 
And ultimately, they just think about the grocery store. They are inconvenienced because they need to go, uh, according to the arrows, up and down the aisleways of a grocery store. They have to wait outside before admission, or they have to keep distance as they wait for the checkout counter, not thinking about all the steps that are in between there and that basket of groceries that you're getting ready to pay for. Yeah. So are we heading towards a, a disaster type of stuff because of COVID? No. Okay. No, we're not. No, we're not. Um, the food supply is extremely resilient. And I think this is one of the things that people uh, you know, need to understand is that we have, uh, we have immense distribution. Uh, we have immense uh, systems in place uh, to ensure that our food arrives uh, cheaply, safely, dependably uh, to the consumer. Now, with all of that being said, there are there are parts of the food system that are of concern to me, and that is the area of fresh produce and and perhaps fruits and vegetables in particular. And you live in California, so you're not far away from a lot of those uh, production areas. And the concern I have really is uh, surrounds the uh, um, surrounds the ability of farmers to attract enough workers. And a lot of these are foreign workers in Canada. We depend on a lot of foreign workers, Jamaican, Mexican workers, to come in to uh, to harvest the crops and work with those farmers. Um, uh, you know, Canadians or Americans listening to this say, "Well, just just hire Americans, just hire Canadians to go pick those vegetables." I guarantee you, at uh, you know a ninety degree day, you'd last about all five minutes. Uh, so these people are resilient. Yeah. And secondly. Secondly, is you don't have a clue on how to do this stuff. I mean, <laughs> no. these people are trained year after year. They show up at the farm and they work hard. Uh, they get paid uh, fairly and uh, they uh, pick uh, the fruits, vegetables, package them, whatever. And then they go back home after the harvest season is done and they know what to do. And they've been doing it for year after year. So, you know, a typical American or Canadian wouldn't have a clue what mm-hmm. to do go up on the farm. In fact, it would create more work for the farmer, not less, because he would have to train you on what the heck to do, and you haven't got a clue. Right. And so, uh, you know, picking uh, picking a tomato at the right ripeness, uh, plucking off the bright bunch of grapes at the right time, those are kind of an art form. You have to be taught. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I didn't, I did not realize that at all. That that was kind of the the issue was with labor and having enough people to to do all this. Huge. That and uh, and the other area, Travis, that's of concern is uh, is uh, is processing facilities. So think uh, think a meat packing plant where uh, the meat is harvested from the uh, hog or chicken or cow. You do have a a large number of people working together in a in a uh, processing facility. Same thing with milk. You have got a large number of people working there in the processing facility. And keep in mind that those facilities are there because they are regulated by the USDA or in Canada by the CFIA to ensure that the food arrives uh, safely. So, you know, when you're butchering a cow or something, there's all kinds of contamination opportunities in that system. And our, uh, our plants today are designed to minimize uh, the transmission of E. coli or salmonella. So you don't hear uh, much about that um, uh, because our system is resilient in that way. But it also puts a lot of people together because of economies of scale into one area. And so that, to me, uh, those are the real big uh, concerns that I have would be 
uh, workers on farm, adequate uh, uh, a- adequate workers on farm to harvest and to work under uh, high value added foods like fruits and vegetables. The processing plants are a vulnerability. Generally, transportation and distribution isn't a big deal. The other area that's a bit of a pinch point is uh, farmers themselves. When you consider that a lot of our farms uh, out here in Canada are uh, 5, 10, 15, 30,000 acres and may have between 5 and 15 employees, uh, those employees at springtime and harvest are essential to getting the crop in and off the field in a, uh, in a short time frame. So we want to make sure that the workers and the farm itself is safe from disease transmission. So the incubation of the, of the farm employees during these peak seasons is also something that our farmers have had to manage and deal with. Mm, that's this is interesting because i mean it's not like i'm following agricultural news you know meticulously every day but from what i've always heard is that the the things are getting more automated and things like that so i wouldn't have thought that this would be a concern well they are getting more automated i mean it wasn't that long ago a farmer fed 20 people today one farmer's feeding 200 people and so that that economy is a scale that efficiency is happening through uh through uh um through mechanization and through uh um, access to sensor technology and data integration remote sensing technology um that's happening through integration of gis or geographic information systems and gps and the equipment but when you still consider that a that a, a tractor and a planter or a tractor and an air seeder um, that complement of equipment is probably worth a million and a half dollars. That a combine is worth seven hundred and fifty to a million dollars. You can't put untrained individuals on that equipment. So uh, yes, uh, farmers are able to um, to uh, farm vastly bigger tracts of land with many few people. But these farms are also due to economies of scale bigger. And I talk about that in my book, Food 5.0, where uh, we talk about how to feed the future. And I talk about farmers of consequence. And, you know, if I say the word agriculture, the word farm, Travis, and what pops into your mind is a, oh, a red barn or a, a, a round fendered pickup truck or sure. farmers with bib, bib overalls and a straw hanging out of their mouth. If, if, that's, if that's your picture of farming, then you're watching the History Channel. And that has no, that is zero relevance to farming today. It may play a role in, in, in farm tourism or agritourism or small nichemanship, mm-hmm. but that, that, that does not represent uh, how we get 80 plus percent of the food to our farm through what I call uh, farmers of consequence. And really what I'm talking about here is farms of scale farms of consequence. And I'm not talking about factory farms and the industrialization of agriculture. I'm talking here about farm families who have incorporated their business. Typically, they're somewhere in the neighborhood of three to five generations long, uh, and uh, they've incorporated their business. And uh, 97, 98% of all farms today in North America, being Canada and the United States, are family farms. Um, vast majority of the big ones today are, are incorporated because that's just smart business. Okay. 
No, I get this. And then, so you mentioned your book, like a major concern and, or something you talk about in your book is just having enough food for everybody, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the question around food production and, and, uh, and abundance of food is within our grasp uh, as humanity. We have still about 800 to a billion people going to bed in, in a, uh, in a uh, not a starvation, but a, but a food-deprived mode. Hmm. Some of those are actually in America, believe it or not. Wow. And, uh, and so that has a lot to do with distribution of food. From the standpoint of us, and, and you know, you could argue the demographics whether our 7.8 billion is going to reach nine, nine and a half, or 10 billion by 2050. It's probably not that big of an argument as to where it ends up, but it'll probably end up at nine. Uh, demographically speaking, many areas of the world are actually going down in terms of population, not up. But places like uh, Nigeria, um, India still are increasing. Um, I have a, a shares in a farming operation in Uganda. That's another area that's exploding. Average age in Nigeria or Uganda is like 16, 17 years old. So wow. those, uh, those young people are all going to have children. And, and so the, it's, it's, you know, it's going to explode in population in certain areas. But mm-hmm. our ability to feed the future really is predicated upon two things, uh, I think. Number one is uh, technology integration in, in agriculture and, and the implementation of science in agriculture because they're not making more land. So we have to feed the people off the land base that we have or a smaller land base. And uh, the second thing is the, the distribution. In other words, can we get food closer to the point of consumption faster? Can we, glow, can we grow it to the, to the point of consumption quicker? Um, those are the things that go through my brain. Okay, so the two issues were, were distribution and then... And then, and then production, the integration of science to allow agriculture to uh to produce food so i mean uh people you know they're quite hung up on the organic label well you buy it if you want to i i don't personally but if you did convert all farming to uganda or to organic farming if you did convert all farming to uh organic then there's something called a yield drag organic farming simply doesn't produce as much food as conventional farming that utilizes the science of uh, crop protection and fertilizer etc um, so where are you going to find, where you, where are you going to find another California to, to cultivate? Because that's the yield drag you're talking about. People are upset because scrubland next to the Amazon is getting knocked down. Uh, what's going to happen when we have to find another California to till and where are you going to find that from? And what marginal land are you going to cultivate to make that happen? So when, when people, uh, look at agriculture and food production, and they come up with very simplistic answers. Um, then I look at them and say, you haven't got a clue because agriculture is a very nuanced industry with all sorts of complexities that are regionally based. And there are no, uh, no silver bullets. No one, no one answer fits all parts of agriculture on the planet. No way. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So we just sort of need to, because like, uh, you know, me being a consumer, I hear organic and I go, well, hell yeah, let's buy that. It's, it's better. That's what I've been told. But is that not necessarily the case? Well, I'll, I'll, turn, the in, I'll turn the interview for, for a second. So what, what does organic mean to you? <laughs> I mean, I guess not using pesticides, not using stuff that's bad for me, growing it is all is where my okay, knowledge fair goes. Fair enough. Okay. So if a, if a farmer didn't have to use pesticides, 
wouldn't all farmers not use pesticides because it costs money? Why would they? Why would they use pesticides if it, if they didn't have to? Uh, uh, good question. I guess good point. Right. So uh, you're growing organic spinach, and you don't use pesticides. So how do you okay. keep the, how do you, how do you keep the bugs and the diseases off your organic spinach? I have no idea. Well, if if you could keep it off by not using pesticides, wouldn't all farmers just not use pesticides? Right, you would think. So how do they control the pests? How do they control the insects and the diseases and organic spinach? I have no idea. Well, they use organic pesticides. Oh, well, what does that mean? Well, they use organic pesticides, like nicotine is an organic pesticide. Well, it's not an organic pesticide. It's an example. Uh, organic pesticides would include things like uh, a pyrethrum. Uh, so py uh, pyrethroid is a synthetic uh, mirror to pyrethrum. Pyrethrum is an organic insecticide. It comes from chrysanthemums. So they pluck the, the leaves off the chrysanthemums, they crush it, and that yields an insecticide called pyrethrum. Because it's derived from an organic source, organic farmers can spray that organic insecticide on the organic crop and still call it organic because it doesn't use synthetic pyrethroid. Now, paradoxically, pyrethroid, that is the synthetic derivative or cousin to pyrethrum, the organic, is safer for humans than pyrethrum. So the organic form of pyrethrum that the organic farmer is using has, uh, has two extra esters in it, which is more toxic to the workers on the farm, and pyrethrum is more toxic to the bees and the butterflies than pyrethroid is. So therefore, uh, they're growing their organic spinach and they're controlling the diseases and insects. Otherwise, why wouldn't all farms just not use pesticides? Because you said you buy organic because it means no pesticides. It's not true. You have to control insects and diseases. So uh, diseases like uh, Ascochyta, for example, on which is a mold on uh, organic grapes. So what do they use? They use uh, elemental sulfur and they use millions of pounds of it. Um, organic uh, 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 farmers would utilize something called Bordeaux mixture. And Bordeaux mixture is a combination of copper sulfate, which is quite toxic, and, uh, and uh, slaked lime. So they mix together copper sulfate and lime into a, a, a mixture called Bordeaux mixture, and they spray that organic mixture on their organic crops. Well, this was first used and discovered uh, on the roads uh, leading to Paris, where the grape growers uh, sprayed this mixture on the grapes to stop the uh, the pedestrians along the roadway from eating their grapes, because uh, people walking to Paris would just eat the grapes of the farmers. So they made up this Bordeaux mixture of copper sulfate and slaked lime and sprayed it on the grapes. And it was a it was a human side first of all, because it prevented humans from eating. Uh, the grapes, but then farmers discovered that it was a fungicide. It had fungicidal properties, so it could control white mold and ascochyta and grapes. And it's it's the number one or one of the biggest uh, fungicides used in organic production is uh, Bordeaux mixture. It's been around forever. Chrysanthemums or pyrethrum goes back to ancient China. So again, when you say somebody buys organic because it means that they don't use pesticides. And I'd say, why wouldn't all farmers go organic? Because yeah, sure. they have to control the bugs and insects and diseases and weeds that come onto 
a farm. And, you know, another question would be, well, how does an organic farmer control weeds on his farm? Because a conventional farmer will use something called a herbicide that we'll use and spray on literally grams per acre of a very specific compound designed to control the weeds in the crop. So I would ask you, how does a uh, organic farmer control weeds? Um, they must use something. They do. They till. They till the land. So they, they, they use a lot of tillage. So where a conventional farmer that practices no-till using genetically engineered crops would use uh, one or two sprays of a herbicide to control the weeds, organic farmers would have to, by the very fact, utilize things like, like mulches and plastic covers, which is great, uh, but they would also have to rely on tillage. And if you care about the quality of the soil and the groundwater, and if you give a shit about climate change, then tilling the land is really not the way to go because every time you till the soil, you release carbon dioxide into the air by degrading the organic matter, which reduces the water holding capacity. So tillage is not a sustainable manner for long-term agriculture sustainability. You want to reduce tillage. You don't want to increase it. So if we all went organic, uh, we'd have to rely on much more tillage and tillage degrades soil. So that, again, is, uh, is an antagonistic type of a thought process. So what's more important? Is more important is, is more important to keep the soil healthy on our planet Earth, to reduce tillage, to reduce greenhouse gases, to increase water holding capacity, to increase organic matter? Or is it more important to till the soil and call it organic? Like, What's more important? Right. Yeah. Okay. This is interesting. Like you digging into this, I have like a million questions, but so it's, even if it's organic produce or something, they're still using pesticides, but they're using organic pesticides, which may in fact be inferior to non-organic pesticides. Right. So uh, another example would be Bacillus thuringiensis. Its uh, acronym is BT. Bacillus thuringiensis is a series of proteins or bacteria, and you spray these on the crop and it controls Lapidoptera, which are like uh, worm insects in crops like corn, soybeans, and, and, and cotton. So you could spray Bacillus thuringiensis, which is an organic insecticide. The problem with it is you have to spray it repeatedly on the crop. So it's not that strong by itself and it doesn't have a long uh, leaf life, so you're spraying it repeatedly on the crop. Coincidentally, Travis, the BT, the Bacillus thuringiensis, is the same protein the scientists have isolated and clipped out of that organic compound and put into crops like corn, soybean, and cotton. It's called GMO BT. Bacillus thuringiensis, corn, soybean, and cotton. And it's one of the un, untold uh, success stories of GMOs um, is that we don't have to spray insecticide on corn, cotton, and soybeans anymore because we have an organic BT protein that's been uh, put into the crop to create its own resistance. So we don't use organophosphates or carbamates anymore indiscriminate insecticides that do kill bees and butterflies indiscriminately. Instead, we've got BT, corn, cotton, soybean, squash, uh, eggplant, 
uh, and those crops now uh, develop their own insect resistance because the protein is inside of them. But the protein was, in fact, derived from an organic uh, insecticide. Wow. Was that that's, that's super cool. That's awesome. It's very cool. Man, okay. And then so now my question is, is there, are there certain, I guess, inorganic pesticides that are are bad for human consumption or have had negative effects for humans? Like, are there instances of that? Well, uh, yeah, the answer is yes. I mean, if you ingest too much uh, elemental sulfur, it can make you ill. Uh, if you ingest uh, any number of organic insecticide compounds uh, could have uh, detrimental effects, but no more so, no more so than synthetic pesticides would be. And the key whether it's organic or conventional, the key is wash your damn fruits and vegetables. Okay. Because if you, if you wash your food, you're going to wash out 99.99% of anything that's on the food. So just wash your tomatoes, just wash your cucumbers, wash your potatoes, wash your squash, wash your lettuce. Once you do that, yeah, these foods are safe. You got to remember that, uh, the amounts that we're using, be it organic or conventional, are, are you know, parts per million, in some cases, parts per billion. So the, um, the risk level to a human being is very, very negligible. So just wash your food. It'll be safe. Okay. That's good to know. So it, it's, kind of, it's, it's necessary to use pesticides and insecticides and everything like that to grow these properly, but we can get rid of them essentially by washing our food. So how do, how do I, what's the proper way to wash fruits and vegetables? Well, just put them in a bowl, <laughs> run them under the sink, and wash them off like lettuce. You can just rinse off. Again, this is this is an area uh, that probably is best uh, you know best answered by a food uh, dietitian. And I I much rather would li- listen to dietitians than nutritionalists uh, from a standpoint of uh, their their education and stuff. But a dietitian would be a good person to talk to. The other thing you just mentioned, I, I thought I should jump on is you know. These crops that farmers are growing, um, potatoes, for example, you could have $3,500 to $4,000 an acre uh, into potatoes, thirty-five dollars to $4,000 per acre. Multiply that by 1,000 acres. Uh, that gives you the gravity of the amount of money that is at risk. And so if Colorado potato beetle comes in and starts ravaging the potato crop, um, you know, it's not like you can just go out there um, and and pluck the Colorado potato beetles nicely off uh, a thousand acres of potatoes. That that dog don't hunt. Yeah. And you got uh, thirty five hundred times a thousand acres worth of of uh, crop out on the ground, and Colorado potato beetle comes along. Um, you've got to protect your crop, and that's why uh, the crop protection industry exists. And anybody, anybody who tells you that we can just grow crops without insecticide, uh, fungicide, um, or, or herbicide is, uh, is dreaming in technicolor because that ain't going to feed the planet. Okay. No, that's good to know. Cause I, honestly, I would never have, have understood that, but that's, it, it's a good fundamental thing to know, I feel like. So thank you for, for kind of explaining that and going through all that. Um, so do you think that there's just kind of a, the conception that organic is better and and things like that is just kind of a a fear that 
consumers Trout. have? Trout. It's marketing. Marketing. Okay. Every time you pick up. Here, I'll give you an example here. All right. This is one of my favorites. You ready for this? Hit me. Right. This is Himalayan rock salt. Okay? Oh, sure. Right? Good, eh? Oh, yeah. Himalayan rock salt has been in the Himalayan mountains for millions of years. Best before date on it, July next year. You got to be honest. First of all, <laughs> that is, that's silly. But this Himalayan rock salt is non-GMO. Holy cow. Non-GMO Himalayan rock salt. First of all, it's salt. There's no biology in salt. So how do you have a genetically modified salt? You don't. There's no such thing as a genetically modified salt. But if I slap this butterfly on this salt and it's sitting next to another Himalayan salt without the butterfly, I can charge you another buck 29 because this is non-GMO Himalayan rock salt. Sure. Then I got you, man. And that butterfly is money in my jeans, money out of your jeans and money in my jeans. It's the same thing as you buying this butterfly on Catelli pasta, or you buying this butterfly on Hunt's tomato, or you buying this butterfly on uh, spinach, or you buying this butterfly on any number of products out there. There is no genetically modified spinach. There is no genetically modified durum wheat. There are no genetically modified tomatoes on the marketplace. It is marketing, it's deception, and it's designed to pull money out of your pocket based on fear that if it was GMO Himalayan rock salt, it's somehow bad for you. Well, that is nonsense. Okay. Market. Wow. And so, did I mean, I guess I'm just trying to think of how this would originate. It must have just come up as these guys are thinking of marketing ways, and, and uh, this became a way for them to differentiate their product, this, these sure. identical salts almost, and they can differentiate themselves and charge more. Right. I, I wanna, I'm going to uh, build my own label for watermelons. I'm going to put boneless watermelons on these labels <laughs> because everybody should have boneless watermelons. Like, why would you want watermelons with bones in them? Mine are boneless. Right. All watermelon are boneless. But yeah, so, you know, uh, non-GMO, gluten-free. Uh, well, gluten is interesting. We should talk about that. But non-GMO uh, seaweed, I've seen that. Like. Uh, non-GMO maple syrup. Like there are no genetically modified maple trees. You know, there's a handful of crops, maybe nine crops around the world that are genetically modified right now. And they're the biggest staple crops that we use to feed people. Um, and they're very, very important. And that science is very important for the, for the future of humanity, but it's vilified by these freaking marketers like this non-GMO project marketing. I have no use for these people. They are deceptive. They lie to you as a consumer and they extract dollars. All of the people who put this on there are using that to inflate the price to extract dollars from a consumer that's ignorant. And I didn't mean stupid. I'm just saying ignorant, doesn't know right. this is a lie. Sure. Well, it's, there's so much to learn. It's hard to be like clearly informed on everything. So you can't blame people, but this is why we're here doing this. Um, so... Why we do what we do is why I wrote the book. This is why I have these conversations. This is why I did the TEDx talk because uh, people just don't know. Yeah. So can you give me? So GMO is genetically modified organism. Mm -hmm. Is that right? Yeah, genetically modified organisms. Actually, it's a very poor term because uh, a lot of well, virtually all 
of the food that you be eat that you eat has been modified in some fashion, you know. And so it's uh, it it more it more precisely refers to the science of genetic engineering, and uh, so that is a that is a that is a more accurate uh, way to describe it, you know. Um, if I asked you, uh, oh, okay, I'll do this, Travis. So I'm going to take, uh, I'm going to take a plant. I'm going to take some seeds of a plant and I'm going to take it to a, uh, uh, I say laboratory. Some people say laboratory. I'm going to take it to a laboratory and I'm going to put it in the laboratory and I'm going to expose that, those seeds to nuclear radiation. And I'm going to expose those seeds to nuclear radiation, gamma radiation for, uh, one day, one week, one month. Um, and then I'm going to grow them to see what kind of mutations happen. Um, or I'm going to take those same seeds and I'm going to subject them to carcinogenic chemicals to cause mutations to happen. Would, would you think that is a, a GMO? Uh, I, yeah, I, I guess so. Yeah, right. That is a process that's known as mutagenesis. It's been around forever. Uh, our grapefruits used to be white in color. Now all the grapefruits are red. How did that happen? That happened by exposing the grapefruit seeds to gamma nuclear radiation and freaking out those seeds in a randomized mutation of the chromosomal complex, resulting in the ruby red grapefruit that uh, I think it was a real red that resulted in the ruby red grapefruit that we all enjoy today. Um, that whole process is not a GMO. That is endorsed by the Organic Association. So the Organic Association endorses or says that the mutation, the random scrambling of genetics through exposure to nuclear radiation or carcinogenic chemicals is okay as a breeding process. But if I take a crop like soybean and inject BT, the Celesthurgensis into the soybean, that's freak of nature, man. And that's genetically, that's a GMO. That's bad. Explain to me how, um, if I flick off, oh, I got another one here. Hold on. <laughs> this one here, this one here is Arctic apple. So this, this is a technology where, um, Neil Carter and some of the guys in Okanagan and British Columbia have figured out how to flick off three to four genes inside of an apple to prevent the apple from prematurely browning. They flick off something called the, I think the polyphenolic oxidase reductase enzyme, something like that. Anyway, they flick off <coughs> three or four genes in the apple. They didn't introduce anything. They flicked off some genes to prevent the apple from prematurely browning. So they flicked off some genes using genetic engineering or gene editing. And, and yet, you can scramble a crop inside of a lab using nuclear radiation and, and carcinogenic chemicals and call that organic. And yet, the flicking off of three genes inside of Arctic, Arctic apple is somehow the devil because it's a GMO or a gene edited. Like, wouldn't you rather have uh, an engineered bridge than a modified bridge, Strauss? Yeah. Yeah. So what is genetic engineering? Well, genetic engineering is an advancement of the currents that we have today, which is the, the advancement of binary code, the advancement of computing power and, and data mining, computer uh, uh, computational power, 
coupled with genetic code, which is ATCs and Gs. Those are the formative proteins of genes in your chromosomal complex. So really all we have going on right now is the ability to read massively uh, greater strands of genetic code, figuring out where anomalies might be or where we want to make changes and make those changes more precisely than subjecting the seeds to nuclear radiation. And somehow people are freaked about this. And I'll guarantee you, I'll guarantee you that when a vaccine is, uh, is uh, finally approved for, for COVID-19, that vaccine will have at the heart of it uh, data management, genomics, and, and genetic engineering. How could it not? Yeah. Uh, we, don't have, we don't have 10 or 15 or 20 years in the case of Yukon gold potatoes, 20 years of breeding using conventional technology to make it happen. We need a cure for COVID right away. And if it's good enough to develop the technology that's going to help to fight COVID for humanity, for crying out loud, don't you think this technology is good enough for farmers to also integrate into the crop breeding processes to utilize less inputs to decrease the environmental footprint or to help grow crops that are more saline resistant or more drought tolerant? Don't you think that that makes sense? So, so let me, because I, I think I'm understanding here, but let me just summarize and you tell me if, I, if I'm on the right track here. So you're saying that the, these seeds, like the, the grapefruit seeds you said, for yeah. example, are they're just sort of randomly scrambled. modified, scrambled. But mm-hmm. if, there's, if they were scientifically, you know, modified and like we went engineered, in there, engineered this would be That's a GMO. This is a GMO, but this is still organic. It's organic. And this is just random, but this is scientifically, they know why they're doing it and what's what's going on, I guess. Yeah, about 3,300 crops on your right hand uh, owe their origins to to random scrambling. And they're all there. They they can be grown organically. They they can you can put an organic you can grow uh, you can grow ruby red grapefruit without synthetic pesticide or fertilizer. So you can use organic fertilizer and organic pesticides and you can grow that ruby red grapefruit and slop slap a non GMO sticker on it when it was derived from nuclear radiation mutation in a lab. So tell me how that all works out. Riddle me that, Batman. Man, so these are just some they like they just feel like arbitrary, you know. I love this interview. I, your eyes just keep going like like I didn't think about that. I didn't know that. That's again why I wrote the book. The people yeah, have man. no clue. They don't know. No, no idea. I mean, you hear all these labels and stuff, but I really don't even know what the labels mean. I'm just told that they're good or bad, I guess, and that's not even nonsense. Yeah. I I uh yeah, I go to the grocery store, I watch people trying to make a decision between all these labels and I just laugh. I you know, I just, I just, I just, I love watching people being, uh, d- uh, you know, deceived and, and uh, dollars pulled out of their pocket by label. I, uh, I particularly get upset with, uh, with, uh, uh, you know, uh, let's call them single moms who are living on, living on uh, pretty uh, limited income and are, are being pressured through social media to buy their kids organic non-GMO this and stuff like that. When that pricing is typically anywhere from 40 to 600% more than a conventionally labeled product. And there's no difference in the quality or value of the food. And that mom is being pressured into spending more. If she buys that conventional product, she thinks she's hurting her kids somehow. This really pisses me off. That 
There's no, there's no call for that. None. Mm-hmm. So, and so the term GMO, it's not inherently bad. It's, it's potentially great. It's inherently good. Yeah. It's inherently good. Genetically modified crops have reducted in, have resulted in a reduction of soil degradation for farm at farm level. They've resulted in the massive decrease of herbicide utilization. And you'll hear people say, oh, yeah, well, Roundup use has gone up like this much. Yeah, but what did Roundup replace? How many herbicides did Roundup replace on the herbicide-tolerant crop? When I spray my canola with Roundup, or people always attack Roundup, but they don't know anything about, they know everything about glyphosate, but they know nothing about glufosinate, which is another cousin, well, it's not a cousin, a different product. But anyways, when I use those products, those herbicides on my crop, uh, I'm spraying a pop can of product on a football field. And the only reason you see anything coming out of the back end of the sprayer is because you're seeing the water come out of the back end of the sprayer. We're using between five and 20 gallons of water per acre to carry a pop can and distribute that over a football field. Um, You know, Roundup is one of the one of the safest products we've ever used in agriculture. It has a LD50, which is called the lethal dose to kill 50% of the rat population of 5,900. The higher the higher the LD50, the safer the product. And Roundup is safer than aspirin, is safer than, well, the active ingredient Roundup glyphosate is safer than, um, than aspirin, safer than uh, salt, safer than caffeine, safer than nicotine by a long shot. You know, uh, Roundup is just slightly less safe than alcohol. And, uh, you know, again, I laugh when people put a non-GMO sticker on vodka. Like, for frick's sakes, there's no genetic material left in vodka. It's all alcohol. And it's a known carcinogen. So. <laughs> okay, Rob. Well, I know you need to get going, but I should we just kind of wrap it up with, like, people, I feel like the message of this has been great, and but it should be that... you. Folks listening shouldn't be afraid of technology being implemented into their food. If we don't, we're doomed. Yeah. Agriculture, the integration of agriculture science is what's going to keep our planet fed and healthy. Uh, And and, uh, as long as we have people on the planet, agriculture must be infinitely sustainable. And Travis, we should schedule another one because I'd like to have a conversation about uh, uh, sharing with you the technology. So we've just been dealing with what I call the soft technology of agriculture, which is the bio side. But I'd like to deal with the digital and tech side in another conversation sometime, which takes you into the world of remote sensing, data management, uh, satellites, GPS, robotics, uh, all of that, artificial intelligence and machine learning as we're using it on the farm I think that'd be a fascinating conversation. But this one here was really cool. Um, I love the fact that you uh, picked up my book. Um, and if people want to get a hold of me, they can, uh, they can Google me. I have my own website, my own domain, robertsyke.com. Mm-hmm. Um, the book is on Amazon. Um, got a TEDx talk that I gave a while ago that's uh, called, uh, Will Agriculture Be Allowed to Feed 9 Billion People? And uh, numerous podcasts and and writings and uh, just working on turning the book into an audible right now as well. So, just oh, nice, yeah. very cool. So anyway, uh, it's uh, I don't know how you connected with me. Like you said, you found me on through the book. But uh, Travis, I uh, I applaud you. We need 
more young people. And I have a son, Nick, he's 30. Nick Syke runs a, uh, a medium, um, a media uh, outlet called No Ideas Media, K-N-O-W, No Ideas Media. And if you go to No Ideas on, uh, on uh, YouTube, you'll find over 120 uh, videos that deal with uh, agricultural science and education. Uh, everything from genetic engineering as explained by Lego. So, uh, oh, and, wow. and right, right over to uh, glyphosate and Roundup in your Cheerios. So we've covered all of those things at No Ideas Media. Okay, sweet. No Ideas Media. Okay, he'd, be well, a great, he'd, he'd be a great interview for you sometime, too. Okay. Uh, I am biased. Yeah, I am biased. He's got hair like you. He's got big hair like you. <laughs> I have the big hair. Big um, hair. Well, this was great, Rob. Yeah, I'll, I'll I'll have links in the description for folks listening to uh, to click on all that stuff to your to your book and the TEDx talk website, noideas.com. so people can check that out. But yeah, I appreciate you coming on. Thank you so much. This was really enjoyable. I really enjoyed it, and uh, looking forward to the next one. Yeah, heck yeah, let's do it. Have a good one, Rob. Thank you. And that's it. Episode 92 has come to an end. Thank you to Rob's sake for being here and sharing all that info. Thank you for being here to the end. Hope you enjoyed that episode. If you know somebody who's kind of interested in the you know future of food and food 5.0 and how we're going to feed all these people in the future coming up, maybe send them this episode. They may like it. Uh, love it when you guys share this episode and, and share the show. Appreciate that. Uh, you can find me, Travis DeRose, on... Instagram at Trav DeRose is my username there. I, I post on there sometimes. And uh, my email is Travis at curiosityness.com. You can send me your ideas and thoughts for new shows or criticize me and tell me what I'm doing wrong. Hmm. Uh, that's it. The episode's over. Thanks for being here. We'll see you in episode 93. Goodbye.